is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. The CT scan shows a small bowel obstruction. It's not surprising. The patient had been through this before. She knew that was the diagnosis. The disposition is easy. The surgeon is happy to accept. But when you tell the patient the CT result, a look of dread comes over her face. You aren't going to shove that tube up my nose again. That hurts. In my mind, the use of NG tubes for bowel obstruction is an anachronism. I grew up hearing about literature that said NG tubes provided no benefit, but they are routinely rated as one of the most painful things we do to our patients. But every time I call surgery, put an NG tube in, is the very first thing that comes out of the surgeon's mouth. So I figured it was time to look through this evidence for myself. It turns out there really is no evidence. But let's go through the few studies we have so you can make the best possible decisions for your patients. The use of NG tubes to decompress the stomach in small bowel obstruction seems to have originated back in the 1920s. This was an era before CT scan. The mortality for bowel obstruction in the 1920s was over 40%. It was a different world. Now, over the course of a couple decades, things changed, and they changed dramatically. Different surgeries were being used, and surgeries in the 1920s was changing a lot as different anesthetics were being developed. Diagnostics improved. X-rays became a thing. And at least at the Mass General Hospital, they started using NG tubes. And from the 1920s until the end of the 1930s, mortality dropped at Mass General from about 45% all the way down to 20%. That's pretty amazing. And as a result, the NG tube just sort of became standard care. But of course, it isn't clear that the NG tube was actually the thing that was helping here. A case series from the 1920s, from an era before CT, an era with a mortality of 40%, that's not really the best evidence to base modern practice on. So let's look at some modern data. There is not a single RCT looking at this practice. Despite strong opinions, despite its widespread use, there's absolutely no modern evidence that an NG tube helps. We do have two observational trials. Now, observational trials are a low level of evidence. Doctors are going to choose to put NG patients in some patients and not others, and those groups are going to be different. And those differences, those confounders, might explain the differences between the groups. So we have to be careful with our conclusions. But the short answer is, the observational data hints at harm, if anything, from NG tubes. Study number one is Fonseca 2013. 290 patients admitted to the hospital with small bowel obstruction. 20% of them were managed without an NG tube. The use of an NG tube was associated with worse outcomes across the board. Longer time to resolution, longer length of stay in the hospital, and a higher rate of complications. Non-operative management was successful in two-thirds of patients across the board, and it was the same whether or not you had your NGD placed. 
Of note, almost two-thirds of the patients who had an NG tube placed only had very minimal drainage from the tube, indicating the procedure could not have possibly helped in the majority of patients. Study number two is Berman 2017. It's another retrospective chart review, this time of 181 patients with small bowel obstruction, half of whom were treated without an NG tube. There was no association at all between NG tube use and mortality, surgery, or bowel resection. NG tube decompression was associated with a longer hospital stay. Again, this is observational data. There were baseline differences between the groups. NG tubes were used more often in elderly patients and those with malignancy, so the data is far from perfect. But we only have two observational studies, and in both, the group who had NG tubes placed actually had worse outcomes. Although somewhat tangential, prophylactic NG tubes have long been used to promote earlier return of bowel function in the context of ileus after surgery. However, a systematic review of 28 studies, including more than 4,000 patients, found the exact opposite. Ileus resolved faster in patients without an NG tube. The conclusion of the systematic review was routine nasogastric decompression does not accomplish any of its intended goals and so should be abandoned in favor of selective use of the nasogastric tube. So to summarize this, we have absolutely no idea if the NG tube helps. There's just no quality evidence. The observational data actually suggests harm in longer hospital stays, longer time to resolution, and more complications, but the data is so weak, I don't really trust it. Honestly, we just don't know. Some patients may benefit, but the observational data suggests that NG tubes should not be used routinely. On the other hand, NG tubes clearly cause harm. NG tubes are painful. They are routinely rated as among the very worst things that we do to patients. There's a classic survey study that looked at adult patients who were admitted to the hospital and had various medical procedures done to them, and the NG tube made it to the very top of the list with an average pain score of 8.8 out of 10. That puts it ahead of mechanical ventilation that only got 8 out of 10. It's also ahead of things like central line placement, arterial lines, and Foley catheters. There are some ways that we can limit the pain from NG tubes, but we generally don't do them and they aren't perfect. Nebulize all the lidocaine you want, the NG tube still hurts. And according to our patients, it hurts more than being intubated. So with clear harm and absolute uncertainty about benefit, there's really only one ethical answer. NG tubes should not be used routinely. I don't really know how to select patients, but, you know, maybe severe pain, nausea or vomiting that isn't controlled with antiemetics, there still may be a role for selective NG tubes, although we're in an evidence-free zone here. But before NG tubes are used routinely, we must demonstrate that there is a benefit that outweighs the known harm. The burden of proof lies with those who are asking us to put patients through this painful procedures. If NG tubes are as important as some people think, if there's a huge absolute benefit, then it should be very easy to demonstrate that benefit in an RCT. However, until we see that RCT, it is unfair to patients to subject them to an unproven, painful procedure. Couldn't agree more with Justin on that one. It's probably worth reminding our surgery colleagues of the lack of evidence for NG tubes when they ask us to order one. All right, next up, to complement the blog, we have EM cases, ECG cases, Jesse McLaren, 
who's going to help us figure out what to do when we see tall T waves on an ECG, and specifically when to suspect occlusion MI, even in the absence of traditional STEMI criteria. You're looking at an ECG of a patient with potentially ischemic symptoms, and some of their T waves seem tall. Are these hyperacute T waves? It's an important question because hyperacute T waves are the first sign of acute coronary occlusion. Along with minor ST elevation and reciprocal ST depression, hyperacute T waves can also identify occlusion MI that doesn't meet STEMI criteria. So hyperacute T waves can help you rapidly diagnose occlusion MI and prevent delayed reperfusion. On the other hand, T waves can be tall at baseline from left bundle branch block, left ventricular hypertrophy, or early repolarization. Or they can be tall from hyperkalemia. So how can you identify hyperacute T waves and differentiate them from other causes of tall T waves? First of all, T waves are only hyperacute relative to their QRS. Like other aspects of ECG interpretation, proportionality is paramount. T waves represent ventricular repolarization, so they should be proportional to ventricular depolarization. T waves might have a tall amplitude, but be relatively small compared to the QRS complex of left bundle branch block, LVH, or early repolarization. So the same amplitude T wave could be relatively small in one ECG and hyperacute in another, depending on its preceding QRS complex. In a study comparing subtle LAD occlusion to early repolarization, the height of the T waves were the same, but the relative sizes were different, being smaller than the R wave in early repolarization, but larger than the R wave in LAD occlusion. So hyperacute T waves are relatively large, often as tall as a preceding R wave, or sometimes exceeding the entire QRS complex. And of course, hyperacute T waves are dynamic, so they are new compared to a previous ECG and change with repeat ECGs. Looking at the T wave in the context of the QRS is not only helpful in differentiating between different causes of tall T waves, but also in identifying hyperacute T waves when the amplitude is small. If the QRS complex itself is small, then its accompanying T wave doesn't have to be tall in amplitude to be hyperacute, it just has to be tall relative to the small QRS. This is important in inferior and especially lateral occlusion MI, which often don't achieve the STEMI criteria of 1 mm of ST elevation, especially if their QRS complexes are small, but which can be identified by hyperacute T waves and reciprocal ST depression. Secondly, in addition to relative height, the morphology, distribution, and associated changes can differentiate between the two life-threatening causes of tall T waves. Hyperkalemia causes peaked T waves, which have a narrow base and a sharp point as though they've been pinched. They're present diffusely across the ECG, associated with other signs of hyperkalemia like prolonged PR and QRS intervals. In contrast, Hyperacute T waves have a broad base and a rounded peak as though they've been inflated. They're localized to an ischemic territory with other regional and reciprocal ischemic changes. So if you see T waves that appear tall in a patient with ischemic symptoms, look at their preceding QRS to see if they're tall in comparison. Look at the T wave morphology to see if it appears inflated and compare to an old and a repeat ECG. If the T waves are hyperacute, in a regional distribution with reciprocal change, this can help you make an early diagnosis of occlusion MI 
and help save the patient's myocardium. So to get some visuals of the different kinds of tall T waves and try your hand at some cases with 12 lead examples, go to ECG cases blog number 21. All right, next we're going to give you a quick hit on a condition that we don't see too often anymore, but still need to be on the lookout for because of its potentially devastating consequences, and that is malignant otitis externa. Take it away, Britt Long. One of our primary jobs in emergency medicine is considering rare but potentially deadly conditions. Malignant otitis externa is just this, a rare condition that can cause disability or death if not diagnosed. Malignant otitis externa, or necrotizing otitis externa, was first described in the 1950s. During this period, mortality was pretty severe, reaching upwards of 50%. Today, even with more accurate diagnosis and treatment, mortality remains around 20%. Now, how does this disease happen? Technically, malignant otitis externa originates from a soft tissue infection of the external auditory canal, usually otitis externa. The disease spreads to the skull base through small perforations in the cartilaginous base of the external auditory canal, leading to osteomyelitis of the skull base. Cerebral abscess, meningitis, and death are the final stages of the disease. Diabetes, especially patients with uncontrolled serum glucose, and immunocompromised patients including HIV, are at highest risk for malignant otitis externa. One study, however, found that the only risk factor was an age greater than 65 years. Pseudomonas is a dominant microbe. This microbe colonizes the external auditory canal in settings of trauma or excess moisture. Other microbes include Klebsiella and MRSA, which may account for up to 15% of cases. Fungal causes include Candida and Aspergillus, which more commonly affect patients with HIV and AIDS. Now, that's enough on background. When should you think about malignant otitis externa? There are several important red flags you need to consider. You first need to consider these risk factors, including diabetes. When it comes to the exam, don't rely on fever, as most patients won't have a fever. The tympanic membrane should be normal, but the rest of the ear canal will look pretty bad. You will probably see purulent otorrhea with a swollen, tender external auditory canal. Granulation tissue or exposed bone may also be found, but immunocompromised patients do not often display granulation tissue. Pain is usually severe and out of proportion to exam. An evaluation of the cranial nerves is important as more extensive disease will cause a deficit. The most common is a cranial nerve 7 palsy, which occurs in up to 25% of patients. Your keys are that you should think about malignant otitis externa in patients with severe pain out of proportion to your exam and severe otorrhea, especially in diabetics, the elderly, or immunocompromised state. What should you use for diagnosis? Labs can't be used to exclude the disease, as the white blood cell count is typically normal, but inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP can be elevated. One lab test that is absolutely essential includes culture of the purulent material from the canal. This culture will help our ENT and infectious disease colleagues nail down the specific bug. Nuclear imaging is the classic technique for monitoring progression and therapy, but this isn't available from the emergency department. CT of the temporal bones with IV contrast is a good place to start, which may show bony erosion and decreased skull base density or abscess formation. However, Sensitivity is not 100%. A 
especially in the earlier stages of the disease. If your initial CT is negative, consider MRI. MRI may depict soft tissue changes, especially of the medullary bone spaces and retrochondylar fat. What antibiotics are recommended? Well, your best course of action is to speak with your infectious disease colleagues prior to treatment and make sure to obtain a good culture of the purulent material from the canal. Most societies recommend an anti-pseudomonal agent, such as a thoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin. For those patients who are toxic appearing, you may want to use another anti-pseudomonal agent, such as cefepime, meropenem, or piperacillin tazobactam. Topical agents are not recommended, as they make it difficult to obtain an accurate culture from the site. Other treatment adjuncts include hyperbaric oxygen, but this is not the foundation of your therapy. What about disposition? Not all patients need admission if you have ENT follow-up and ideas on board, the patient is otherwise systemically well and not immunocompromised, pain is controlled, and there is no facial palsy. However, many patients will have severe pain or immunocompromised state, and admission in these patients will probably be needed. Unfortunately, the disease can recur in 20% of cases. Facial nerve palsy and fungal infections are also poor prognostic findings. In summary, think about malignant otitis externa in a patient with severe otitis externa, pain out of proportion to exam, and severe otorrhea. Risk factors include diabetes and immunocompromised state. Diagnosis is based on your history and exam, with CT as your first-line test. If you think malignant otitis externa is present, talk with ENT and infectious disease, obtain cultures of the purulent material, and provide an anti-pseudomonal agent. So a cognitive forcing strategy here is that every time you're faced with a patient with otitis externa, ask yourself, could this be malignant otitis externa? Ask yourself, are they older patients or immunocompromised? Do they have pain out of proportion? Do they have an unusual volume of otorrhea? If they have any of these, consider having a chat with your ENT on call, consider swabbing the ear, consider getting a CT, and consider starting them on systemic anti-pseudomonals. All right, we're now going to give you a best of Rebel EM quick hit with Salim Rizé. Now, coronary CT angiography seemed to really never take hold in Canada because, as far as I know, the evidence has never been really good enough. But apparently in the U.S., it's used quite extensively. So let's hear what Sal has to say about CCTA versus invasive angiography in a non-STEMI patient. Hey, MCASE listeners, this is Salim Rezai, creator and founder of Rebel EM. And in this best of Rebel EM, we're going to be talking about the use of CCTA and patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. So we know that coronary pathology in patients with non-STEMI can range from structurally normal vessels to varying degrees of non-obstructive coronary artery disease, all the way up to the extreme of extensive obstructive coronary artery disease affecting that coronary tree. Now, the current diagnostic pathway to differentiate these different coronary pathologies is, well, the gold standard, invasive coronary angiography. A routine invasive strategy, however, can be associated with increased risk of bleeding, iatrogenic injury from the cath itself, and prolonged hospital stay. Coronary Computed Tomography Angiography, or CCTA, 
is a simple, low-risk, non-invasive test that can potentially rule out coronary artery disease and is gaining more popularity in the evaluation of non-ST elevation MI patients. However, the prognostic information about obstructive coronary artery disease and or the extent of coronary artery disease defined by the CCTA in patients with non-STEMI compared to invasive coronary angiography is unknown. So the paper we're talking about is by COFED, KF, et al., Prognostic Value of Coronary CT Angiography in Patients with Non-ST Segment Elevation Acute Coronary Syndrome. And the clinical question they were trying to answer is, is CCTA equivalent to invasive coronary angiography for risk assessment in patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome? So here's what they did. This is, first of all, a secondary study or a sub-study from an original randomized clinical trial. And that trial was the VERDICT trial, which was very early versus deferred invasive evaluation using computerized tomography. And in that trial, 2,100 patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome from nine hospitals in Denmark were randomized to acute invasive strategy within 12 hours or a deferred invasive strategy within 48 to 72 hours. Now, this data that we're going to review is the observational component from that study. And interestingly, a thousand patients received a CCTA prior to their invasive coronary angiography. And by the way, the patients who received that invasive coronary angiography, those cardiologists were blinded to the results of the CCTA. So a couple of definitions to get us all on the same page. So they looked at severity of coronary artery disease, and they defined this into two dichotomous outcomes. One is obstructive, which is greater than one coronary artery with greater than or equal to 50% stenosis, or non-obstructive, less than 50% stenosis. They also looked at the extent of coronary artery disease, and they defined this as high-risk and non-high-risk. High-risk patients were defined as obstructive left main or proximal LAD stenosis and or multivessel disease. Everyone else was considered non-high-risk. Their primary outcome was a composite of all-cause death, non-fatal recurrent MI, hospital admission for refractory myocardial ischemia, or hospital admission for acute heart failure. So the results. About 1,000 patients had CCTA and angiography performed. The median interval between the CCTA and the invasive coronary angiography was about two hours. Median follow-up time was about 4.2 years. And the primary endpoint occurred in about 208 patients, or 21% of the patients. Now, when we look at that coronary artery disease severity, right, and again, if we look at those definitions, that was obstructive versus non-obstructive, with obstructive being greater than one coronary with greater than or equal to 50% stenosis. When we look at that outcome, CCTA and invasive coronary angiography were concordant in their findings in 88.5% of all patients. When we look at the extent of coronary artery disease, so high risk or non-high risk, Again, the CCTA and invasive coronary angiography were concordant in their findings in 76.8% of all patients. It's good to know what were the risk factors for these patients, and obstructive disease and high-risk coronary artery disease were more commonly found in men who were slightly older, smokers, diabetics, previous history of a PCI, ischemic ECG changes, or a GRACE score greater than 140 at clinical presentation. Now, the rate of the primary endpoint was up to 1.7-fold higher in patients with obstructive coronary artery disease compared with patients with non-obstructive coronary artery disease as defined by the CCTA. 
This gave us a hazards ratio of 1.74, and the confidence interval was statistically significant. When we look at patients uh, with high-risk coronary artery disease, the rate of the primary endpoint was 1.5-fold higher compared with the rate in those with non-high-risk coronary artery disease, again defined by the CCTA with a hazard ratio of 1.56, again confidence intervals being statistically significant. Now, there was no difference in mortality based on coronary artery disease severity or extent of coronary artery disease using invasive coronary angiography or CCTA. In other words, not statistically significant in this finding. So a few points of discussion. In this observational trial of CCTA versus invasive coronary angiography in patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome, CCTA was essentially equivalent but not identical to invasive coronary angiography for assessment of long-term risk. There was more obstructive disease found with CCTA compared to invasive coronary angiography, and this could lead to more downstream testing and interventions. The final thing I want to leave you with is CCTA is an anatomic study, whereas invasive coronary angiography is not only an anatomic study, but a functional study as well. And this is important to understand because there may be some non-obstructive lesions seen on CCTA that are attributable to cardiovascular events from unstable plaques. Advantages of the invasive coronary angiography include looking at coronary plaque morphology, such as with intravascular ultrasound, optical coherence tomography, near-infrared spectroscopy, looking at basically vascular calcification, plaque volume or high-risk plaque features, all of which have prognostic implications that CCTA just simply cannot give us. So what's the clinical take-home point here? This multi-center observational substudy from the verdict trial shows that CCTA can identify severity and extent of coronary artery disease in an equivalent fashion to invasive coronary angiography in assessing long-term risks in patients with a non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. However, without individual patient-level data and evaluating false negatives and false positives, statistically significant hazard ratios do not help guide us on what to do at the bedside. I would not continue substituting CCTA for invasive coronary angiography based on this data. And there you have it. Until next time. So that was Sal's interpretation of that CCTA study. Let's hear what Justin Morgenstern has to say about CCTA. So when we covered stress testing on Journal Jam at the beginning of the year, and if you don't remember, our conclusion was it doesn't help. There was one question that I anticipated. What about coronary CT angiogram, CCTA? It's newer technology. It must be better. Now, CCTA was covered in episode 128, and I'm not going to say anything different from our experts there, but I thought it was worth reviewing the evidence in case you're using CCTA or the option comes up. One thing we know for sure, CCTA is more accurate than stress testing. But that's not very hard, considering that exercise stress testing has a sensitivity of less than 50%. But CCTA is pretty good. The sensitivity is in the high 90s, and the specificity is probably somewhere in the 80s. So that sounds pretty good. It sounds like a test that we should be able to use. But there are two really important things to remember from that stress testing episode. First, our low-risk chest pain patients are incredibly low-risk. After normal ECGs and negative troponins, the chance that our patient will die or have an MI in the next three to six months is around two in a thousand. Not the 2% that we were always taught, 0.2%. Second, in order for a test to help, it has to change management in some way. 
And we know that all patients should be counseled about diet, exercise, and smoking, and that all patients need risk factor modification. And we know that if you have a negative troponin, if you're not having an MI, you get no benefit from invasive management. You don't need cath, you don't need revascularization. So it's not clear how stress testing or CCTA could possibly change management. Luckily, unlike stress testing that has just been widely adopted without any evidence, we actually have multiple RCTs of CCTA. So we don't have to guess, we can just look and see if it's helping our patients. And the quick answer is that all of these trials are negative. None of the trials showed any patient-oriented benefit. If you combine all of the six emergency department-based RCTs, there is a total of 4,500 patients. There was one death, that occurred in the CCTA group, and there were 12 MI, with no real difference between the two groups, four in the CCTA group and eight in the standard care group. Now, if you're keeping track, that's 13 bad outcomes out of 4,500 patients. That's 2.8 in 1,000, almost exactly that 2 in 1,000 number I told you from the stress testing literature. So based on the best evidence we have, CCTA does not help us prevent MIs or death or any patient outcome. There is a meta-analysis, Gongora 2018. It actually looks at 10 trials, so it's these ED trials plus some inpatient trials, and there were no statistical benefits. The only thing that changes with CCTA is that more patients get sent for invasive management. But because those invasive interventions aren't preventing any bad outcomes, I think it's pretty clear that they represent harm. So in my mind, the data is pretty definitive. CCTA does not help our low-risk chest pain patients but it is going to cause harm, both directly from radiation, but also from increased downstream testing. As a brief aside, I think it's worth considering what this data tells us about stress testing. We don't have any RCTs of stress testing, but we know that CCTA is a more accurate test than than the stress test, a much more accurate test. And we have good evidence that CCTA does not help. In fact, it's probably harmful. That's pretty damning for stress tests. If the more accurate test can't help our patients, How could the coin flip of a stress test possibly help? Now, does that mean there's no role for CCTA? I don't know. It's not a bad test, especially with the newer versions that give you functional data as well. But it was doomed to fail in these trials. You can't possibly prevent MI or death if there were only 13 bad outcomes in the 4,500 patients that you study. But maybe it would be helpful in a higher risk patients. Think about what I said at the beginning. CCTA has a very high sensitivity but the specificity isn't great. What other tests have very high sensitivities but lower specificities? Well, D-dimer is one of them. And we know if we try to use D-dimer in low-risk patients, we're screwed because there's so many false positives. But D-dimer is a helpful test. If you've already decided the patient needs a CTPA, D-dimer can help us rule out PE, and it can prevent a CT in a portion of those patients. I think that's a good analogy. Tests with high sensitivity but lower specificity aren't going to help in super low-risk patients, but for some reason, that's where we've been focused with CCTA. But maybe it could help our higher-risk patients. For example, consider our NSTEMI patients. Right now, basically everybody with a positive troponin gets sent to the cath lab. But if you look at the Cochrane review, most of our NSTEMI patients don't actually benefit from going to the cath lab. There is no mortality benefit. It does not save lives. The only benefit is a small reduction in non-fatal MI. But non-fatal MI is a surrogate outcome. The reason that people are worried about MI is they're worried they might die. So if they're not going to die, non-fatal MI is just a lab test. It's a troponin bump. 
Maybe there'll be some long-term outcomes, CHF or exercise intolerance, but the troponin bump is just a surrogate. So the benefit from cath lab in NSTEMI patients is incredibly marginal. But not all NSTEMIs are the same. There is a huge range. So maybe CCTA could help us determine which NSTEMI patients really need invasive management. Maybe it could distinguish between type 1 MIs and type 2. Maybe it could help us distinguish the occlusive MIs from the non-occlusive. You know, those ECGs that are borderline, where you're fighting with cardiology, but whether the patient needs to go to the cath lab immediately because they don't quite fulfill STEMI criteria. Now, for now, that's all just conjecture. Obviously, I'd love to see more research, but I think this is the direction that research has to go because it's very clear. We cannot help patients who have a 2 in 1,000 risk by adding more testing. I think the evidence is very clear that CCTA, as we're currently using it in very low-risk patients, is harmful. I think we have more than enough evidence to say definitively that unless you're part of some research trial, nobody should be using CCTA in low-risk chest pain patients. All right, before we dive into the last EM quick hit of the podcast, tickets for the virtual EM Cases Summit go on sale August 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can get them at emcasesummit.com. A ticket includes access to all the talks for three months after the summit. And if you're a resident, registrar, RN, paramedic, medical student, or PA, you'll get deep discounts. Hope to see you there. All right, up next, disposition decisions are sometimes really tough for patients who present to the ED with syncope. Here's Hans Rosenberg reviewing the Just for Facts on the Canadian syncope risk score with the lead author. Welcome to another EM Cases Quick Hits and CGEM collaboration to highlight one of the latest Just the Facts articles. I'm joined by Dr. Venkatesh Thiruganasam Bandamurthy. He's an emergency physician and internationally renowned researcher. Welcome, Venk. Thank you. Thank you, Hans. This episode, we're going to talk about his latest article, Just the Facts, How to Assess a Patient Presenting to the Emergency Department with Syncope. Now, I want to clarify how we use the Canadian syncope risk score while we chat here. This is a tool that has the potential to make huge difference in the way we disposition syncope patients. Can you briefly tell me a little bit about the components and how we use the Canadian syncope risk score? First thing is to make sure that the patient does did suffer syncope. Ensure that the patient that you're dealing with did not have any non-syncopal conditions. Once you've confirmed that, ensure that there are no serious underlying conditions that as an emergency physician that you must investigate and identify it. That's the second step. Once you have ensured that there are no serious underlying conditions that are happening and the patient does not need to be admitted for some other non-syncope related cause, then you are ready to use the Canadian syncope risk score. The Canadian syncope risk score itself has about nine components or nine predictors, three from the clinical evaluation, whether there was a predisposition to vasovagal symptoms, history of heart disease, an abnormal systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or more than 180, three components in the investigations. Was there an elevated troponin? Was there an abnormal QRS axis? Was a QRS duration more than 130? Corrected QT interval more than 480. And finally, what was your diagnosis in the emergency department? Your clinical gestalt, was it vasovagal syncope or cardiac syncope? The 30-day serious outcomes that the CSRS predicts include death, arrhythmias, such as ventricular arrhythmias, or supraventricular arrhythmias, such as atrial fibrillation, 
Six sinus syndrome, high degree AV blocks, non-arrhythmic conditions, which include cardiac conditions such as MR, serious structural heart disease or aortic dissection, non-cardiac conditions such as PE, subarachnoid or significant hemorrhage. It also identifies patients who require treatment due to other serious conditions such as ectopic pregnancy, sepsis, and as well as procedural interventions such as pacemaker or defibrillator insertion. All right, so we know what the Canadian syncope risk score entails. Now, what I want to know is what do I do with the different scores? So when a patient is low risk, what would be their disposition? For clinical purposes, we combine the low risk and the very low risk together to just say it's just low risk. When you look at these patients, in our study, 75% of patients were in the low risk category after the initial ED evaluation. None of these patients suffered death due to an unknown cause. None of these patients suffered a ventricular arrhythmia. The other serious conditions, which are supraventricular arrhythmias, were 0.2%. Non-arrhythmic conditions were 0.3%. Overall, less than 1% of patients will have any kind of serious outcome within the 30 days. I think these patients can easily be discharged home even clear advice when to return to the emergency department and follow up with their family doctor if it is needed. How about the medium risk patients? I often find these are the trickiest ones in terms of what to do with them in regard to disposition. Excellent. So at the outset, if you just like look at all the medium risk patients, you will have a 7 to 8% chance of a serious outcome. But if you look at the publications that we have done, the risk of death or an ventricular arrhythmia is about 1% in these patients. If you just look at the risk of death itself is less than 1%, ventricular arrhythmia itself is less than 1%. The majority of the outcomes that these patients suffer are non-ventricular or supraventricular type of arrhythmias. By doing an outpatient monitoring, you can detect these supraventricular arrhythmias, which are generally not life-threatening. That leaves us only about 2% of patients who will have a non-arrhythmic condition by doing a proper information session with them and educating them about serious underlying conditions. You can request these patients to come back to the emergency department. I think that will be the ideal disposition of the patient. Discharge them, preferably with monitoring, with clear instructions as to when to come back. Well, thank you so much, Vank. This should really help people start to apply the Canadian syncope risk score at the bedside in the right way. I think the well-validated Canadian syncope risk score can be useful in patients who you're thinking of sending home, but not sure are really low risk enough to be sent home. One problem with the score is that it relies on clinician gestalt to assess whether it's cardiac versus vasovagal syncope. I kind of wonder whether the score overall is any better than an experienced physician's gestalt. Another issue is that every patient with syncope would need a troponin sent to use the score, and I wonder about the false positives and length of stay when tropes are ordered on everyone with syncope. One interesting thing about the score is that in addition to including more obvious things like QT interval and QRS duration, it also includes abnormal QRS axis which, to be honest, I haven't really taken into account in my syncope patients in the past unless I'm suspecting a PE. Okay, let's wrap up. First, be on the lookout for malignant otitis externa for all those patients you see with swimmer's ear. Think twice about putting an NG in everyone with a bowel obstruction. 
know how to differentiate hyperacute T waves from other causes of tall T waves. While CCAT might be comparable to invasive angiography to help risk stratify patients with ACS, I'm not sure that it has too much of a role in the ED in Canada, at least. So until next time, take it easy.